I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Now in chapter 7 we had an explanation of Daniel's first vision. Now he is going to recount to us his second vision. And like the first, this is prophetic, which is the case throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. But chapter 8 really marks a transition point in the book because the prophetic portion of the first part of Daniel deals with the view of Gentile history apart from Israel. There are two major dreams in the first part of the book. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. In chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. And they're really synonymous in their interpretation because they lay out the times of the Gentiles. The four major kingdoms that would reign on the earth prior to the coming of Christ's kingdom. But now we are coming to the part of Daniel where Israel and its people will be the focal point. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 9, if you'll notice the last phrase of that verse, it talks about the beautiful land. What's that? Israel. Look over in chapter 9 and verse 24. Speaking to Daniel, Gabriel says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. What's Daniel's people? Israel. Chapter 10 and verse 14. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. Chapter 11, verse 16, talks again about the beautiful land. And chapter 11, verse 41, talks about the beautiful land. Daniel will still be dealing with the Gentile nations, but he will have an emphasis on how they relate to Israel. And to mark that transition, Daniel does something very interesting at the beginning of chapter 8. He switches languages. He's been writing in Aramaic, which is the language of Babylon. Now he switches to Hebrew, which is the language of Israel, as if to say, now I'm focusing on the people of Israel. Now, when Daniel had this vision, all the things that he saw were future. As we look back today, three quarters of the things mentioned in chapter 8 have already been fulfilled, which makes this a chapter of great encouragement. Because fulfilled prophecy is one of the best evidences I know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. God doesn't just give us prophecy so that we will know what will happen in the future. Because we don't need to know everything that's coming. God tells us prophecy to confirm His, his Word. In fact, to show you that, let me have you look at Isaiah chapter 41 for just a moment. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah, and he says, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming, Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. God puts forth a challenge to the false gods. And he says, you want to prove that you are deity? Then tell me what's going to happen in the future. Then turn over a few more chapters to chapter 45, verse 21. 
God speaking again says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. What does prophecy confirm? The reality of God. And then one other verse, chapter 46 of Isaiah and verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. And that's the very thing we find in Daniel chapter 8. God in ancient times is declaring what would come to pass. And it's very exciting because we get to go back to those ancient times through Daniel and see him predicting things that have already been fulfilled yesterday, which gives us confidence about the things that God has promised for tomorrow. And one of the things that God has promised for tomorrow is the coming of the Antichrist. And that is one of the recurring themes in the last part of Daniel. Daniel refers to him as the little horn, the prince who is to come, the willful king. He's spoken about in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11. But I want you to remember something. And that is that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise. False Christs, plural, will arise. John said in 1 John 2, 18, just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. Many Antichrists will come before the ultimate Antichrist comes on the scene. And we've seen many in our day. Jim Jones, Charles Manson, David Koresh. And Daniel points in that direction in the 8th chapter. Because at the end of the chapter, he's going to describe the ultimate Antichrist. But before that, he predicts two others that are going to come on the scene. They are like signposts for the coming Antichrist. They are going to display some of the characteristics of that ultimate Antichrist. And we're going to look at the first of those this morning. Now, to understand chapter 8, you've got to get your horns straight. Because chapter 8 talks about two horns and a big horn and four horns and a small horn. And as we go through it, to give you some idea of what he's really emphasizing, we're going to primarily focus on three horns that Daniel focuses on. And that is the big horn, the small horn, and the final horn. And before we get into that, he gives us the setting in the first two verses. The time we already saw in verse 1 is the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. So it's 551 B.C. This takes place two years after the vision he just had in chapter 7. So chronologically, it occurs between chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's 12 years before the fall of Babylon, and Daniel is about 69 years old. Secondly, we see the method. It says in verse 1, a vision appeared to me. Now, if you remember in chapter 7, Daniel had a vision, but that vision came in the form of a dream while he was sleeping on his bed. So this vision comes in a different way. We're told in chapter 7 that it was nighttime. This is apparently daytime. 
which reminds us that God doesn't always work in the same way. And I kind of like Daniel's response. Daniel doesn't say, this can't be you, Lord, because you've always done it that way. No, Daniel got the vision in chapter 7 while he was sleeping on his bed. Apparently in chapter 8, he's going about his business of the day and suddenly he gets a 3D movie in his mind and he's in it. A vision from the Lord. Thirdly, we see the recipient. He says in verse 1, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. Now literally that says, it appeared to me, me, Daniel. Which tells me that Daniel is a little bit surprised. I like the King James. It says, it appeared to me, even me, Daniel. What's that tell us about Daniel? Well, he is reflecting one of the characteristics of godliness, and that is humility. Daniel says, it appeared to me. Me, Daniel, can you believe it? Me, little insignificant me. I got this vision. John does the same thing in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, I... John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and he appeared to me. Me, John, can you believe it? That's the way we ought to respond every day to the Word of God. Can you believe it? God has given me His Word and enabled me to understand it. Me, Dan, can you believe it? Fourth thing we see is the location in verse 2. And I looked in the vision and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Now, Daniel has this vision in Babylon, but in his vision, he sees himself in Susa. Now, where's Susa? It's about 200 miles east of Babylon. It's about 130 miles north of the Persian Gulf. And when Daniel has his vision, Susa isn't a very important town. That's why he has to explain where it is. He says it's over there in the province of Elam. It wouldn't even rate a big red dot on a map of that day. Daniel's out in the suburbs, in the little town of Susa. He says, I'm standing by the Uli Canal, which was a 900-foot-wide man-made canal between two rivers. Now, why is he out there? Well, because though Susa was a pretty unremarkable city at the time that Daniel has his vision, 12 years later, it will be the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the place where 73 years later, Esther would become queen and be used by God to spare the people of Israel. It's the place where a little over 100 years later, Nehemiah would be serving as a cupbearer to the king. And so Daniel in his vision is at this little insignificant place, but it's the place that God is going to use to become the nerve center of the next world empire. And so even the location is prophetic. Now let's look at Daniel's vision. We see about the big horn in verses 3 to 8. Notice verse 3. Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal, now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. Now he sees a ram, it's got two horns, which is not surprising because all rams have two horns. One of the horns is longer than the other, and he says it came up last. Now what is this all about? 
Because sometimes we read into this stuff and read it and we kind of go, whoa, where am I? Uh, Rich Margaret was telling me when they first started their Bible study, they, they picked Daniel as the first book to study. And he said they did fine until they got to chapter 8. And then they decided to study something else, so they went to the book of Revelation. <laughs> this could be a little bit confusing if we didn't already know some things from studying so far in the book of Daniel. Because in chapter 7, we learn that beasts are kingdoms and horns are kings. So which kingdom had two horns? Well, it was the Medo-Persian Empire. And Aminius Marcellinus, a 4th century historian, states that when the Persian ruler stood at the head of his army, he carried the head of a ram. A ram was associated with Persia. The astrologers who were so prominent in that day placed Persia under the zodiacal sign of Aries, which is the ram. And so he sees this ram, it's the Medo-Persian Empire. He said, well, what's the deal with the horns? Well, media was around for quite a while. Uh, media, in fact, had helped the Babylonian Empire overcome Assyria back in 612 B.C. So media was a major power. But Persia was not. Persia was a pretty insignificant place. In fact, they only had about 50,000 square miles of territory. But Cyrus became the king of Persia, and Persia began to grow. And though it started later than the Median country, it grew bigger than them, and then coincided with Media to create the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, how did Daniel know that 12 years before it happened? Well, God showed him. You say, well, how are you so sure that the ram with two horns is the Medo-Persian Empire? Well, that's easy. Turn over to verse 15. It says, And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. Daniel had the vision. He's still in the vision, but he says, I wanted to understand it, so I saw someone who looked like a man. Verse 16, And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So Daniel's still in the vision, he wants to understand it, and he gets Gabriel, who comes as his personal interpreter. Now, slide down to verse 20. Gabriel is speaking, and he says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I like what Dr. Henry Morris said about the book of Revelation. He said, Revelation is not difficult to understand. It is difficult to believe. If you will believe it, you will understand it. And the same is true of all prophecy. It is written in symbolic language, but it's not difficult to understand. If you will believe it, you can understand it. This ram with one horn bigger than the other is the same as the bear in chapter 7 that was raised up on one side. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. And in verse 4, we get a brief sketch of the history of that Medo-Persian Empire. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Now notice, it butts 
westward, northward, and southward. Why doesn't it but eastward? Well, because it is east. If you looked at a map of that day, Medo-Persia is the far east. And if you examine the history of the Medo-Persian Empire, it went west, taking Babylonia, Syria, and Asia Minor. Then it pushed north, taking Armenia and all the region around the Caspian Sea. And then it went south and took Egypt and Ethiopia. And Daniel foresees that as it butts its way along, apparently there were other beasts that tried to get in its way that he doesn't describe for us, but he says it went right over them. They couldn't stand before him. And that's a description of the comparative ease with which Cyrus took the world. He was practically unopposed. In fact, one of the most notable kings at that time was a king in Asia Minor by the name of Croesus. Maybe you've heard the phrase, someone is as rich as Croesus. Well, Cyrus swept right over him. Do you know what's interesting to me? Isaiah made this same prediction 150 years before Daniel. I want you to take your Bible and look at Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron gates. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. What's Isaiah saying? God is going to run interference for Cyrus. He's going to clear the way. He's going to make the rough places smooth. He's going to knock down the brass gates and give Cyrus freedom to travel over the whole earth. Why is he going to do that? Well, he says so at the beginning of verse 4. He says, for the sake of Israel. You know what happened when Cyrus became king? He's the one who made the decree that the people of Israel could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And Isaiah even predicts that. In chapter 44, the last verse says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So if you think Daniel's prophecy is impressive, 150 years earlier, Isaiah calls Cyrus by name. Now, Cyrus was characterized by two things. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 4 at the end says, first of all, he was, had self-will. It says he did as he pleased. And secondly, he had pride because it says he magnified himself. And that is typically the case with world rulers. Pride and self-will. So Daniel is in Babylon, and he sees the description of the next world empire and he's actually told who it will be. That explains to us why back in chapter 5, when Daniel came in before Belshazzar and saw the handwriting on the wall, he wasn't surprised. 
In fact, he said rather matter-of-factly in Daniel 5.28, your kingdom will be divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Why wasn't Daniel surprised? Well, because he had had a preview of it 12 years before. Look at verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. While Daniel is looking at the ram, a goat comes from the west. Now, who is the goat? Well, Gabriel interprets that for us in verse 21. It says, And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. The goat is Greece. Greece was located on the western shore of the Aegean Sea. You know what Aegean means? Goat. So they lived on the Goat Sea. And astrologers connect Greece with the zodiacal sign Capricorn, the goat. In fact, the word Capricorn comes from the Latin, which means horned goat. And where is Greece? Is it to the north or the south? No, it's to the west. In fact, if you look at a map of that day, you can't get any further west than Greece. And our verse 5 predicted that when it says they would be coming from the west. And how far would it go? It says it would come from the west over the surface of the whole earth. Greece became an empire that was even far greater than the Medo-Persian empire. It was immense. It extended from Europe to Asia and encompassed, encompassed great portions of Africa. Notice also in verse 5, as Daniel sees this goat, he says it's traveling over the whole earth without touching the ground. What's that indicate? Speed. Greece is flying across the earth. Remember back in chapter 7, the Greek empire is depicted as a leopard, swift, with four wings on its back. Greece is swift. Greece took over the whole world in less than 12 years. And then notice the end of verse 5. It says, And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now, most goats have two horns. This one had one. He's a unicorn. And this one horn is conspicuous. That is, it is big. It is notable. It's attractive. Now, who is that horn? Well, Gabriel tells us in verse 21. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, who was the first king of the Greek Empire? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is considered by many to be the greatest military genius of all history. He was born in 356 B.C., over 200 years after Daniel's vision. Alexander was educated under Aristotle. His mother taught him that he was a descendant of Achilles and Hercules which is apparently where he got his self-confidence. His father was Philip of Macedon, a great military leader. In fact, growing up, Alexander's biggest worry was that it, when his father got through, there would be nobody left to conquer. Philip united Greece and Macedonia and had plans to eventually go against Medo-Persia, but he was assassinated. After his death, his son Alexander took up his cause. 
And at the age of 21, he became king in 336 B.C. Two years later, he marched out to battle and never came home again. Here's how Daniel saw it, verse 6. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Alexander had about 35,000 soldiers. He crossed the Hellespont and left Greek soil. Not far from there, he came to the Granicus River and found a massive Medo-Persian army. And he devastated them. Now, how did he do that? Well, in our passage, verse 6 says, the goat acted in mighty wrath. And verse 7 says, he was enraged. See, Greece was not just going to battle to get some more land. They were going to battle to gain their freedom. And they hated the Medo-Persians for all the atrocities and inhumanities that they had done to them and to the, their ancestors in the past. This was a motivated army. They were angry. And Daniel predicted that. Alexander immediately freed all the Greek city-states of Asia Minor. He went on to Issus in the Taurus Mountains where he defeated the Medo-Persian army a second time. From there, he went to Tyre and annihilated it. He moved from there down to Egypt and occupied it. He then set out for the Tigris River near the site of old Nineveh where he met the Persians for the third time. This time, the Persian army was immense, but to no avail. Alexander defeated them and the whole empire fell into his lap. As verse 7 says, the goat hurled the ram to the ground and trampled on him. And verse 8 says, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. That's probably a reference to the kingdom, which, as we said earlier, became even larger than any previous kingdom. Although some think it may be a reference to Alexander's ego. Because in 324 B.C., he proclaimed his deity, saying he was the son of Zeus Ammon, and requiring that his commanders and comrades prostrate themselves before him. But his mortality was soon evident, as we read in verse 8. It says, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. When the kingdom was at its zenith, the large horn was broken. Alexander soon ran out of kingdoms to conquer. And so he went to Babylon and spent his time having drinking matches with his officers. And historians are split on whether he was actually poisoned or whether he poisoned himself with alcohol abuse. At any rate, in June 323 B.C., he got a fever that he never recovered from, and he died at the age of 33. I want you to notice the end of verse 8. It says, The large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Will Durant records that when Alexander was dying, one of his generals asked him to whom he was leaving his empire. And Alexander answered, to the strongest. And that's exactly what happened, because after Alexander's death, there was a fierce struggle for his empire. 
And eventually it was split up among four of Alexander's generals, just like verse 8 says. Four horns, four kings, will divide the kingdom toward the four winds of heaven. Cassander ruled Greece in the west. Lysimachus ruled the north in what is now Turkey. Seleucus ruled Babylon in the east, and Ptolemy ruled Egypt in the south. And that's just the way Gabriel interpreted it in verse 22. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. They took the territory. They never again had the power that Alexander had. So Alexander is the big horn in chapter 8. And as such, he gives us a preview of the Antichrist. Next week, we're going to see another preview of the Antichrist, as well as a description of the final Antichrist himself. Alexander depicts for us, I think, the power and the swiftness of the coming Antichrist. Because the coming Antichrist is going to take the world even faster than Alexander did, and he's going to have even more power. So today we've had a unique experience. We get to look through the eyes of Daniel into the future as we stand here in history and look back on that same individual, Alexander, and we can see all the details of that prophecy already fulfilled. He was one of many antichrists, false messiahs. And yet when you compare him with the true messiah, he doesn't even measure up. The only way he compares is in the way which Charles Ross Reed points out in this poem. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth. The other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood. The other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died at Babylon and one at Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every tongue, the other every grave. The one made himself God, the other made himself less. The one lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died to live forever as Lord of Lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves, the Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood, the other built on love. The one was born on earth, the other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all, but all to him is given. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. Jesus and Alexander died at 33.